0: Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast, stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence, to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. Russell, welcome. Greetings. Happy Tuesday. Russell David Dennis, the co-host every week, we broadcast live at two o'clock on Tuesdays on Facebook, and we record for the podcast, the nonprofit exchange, which you can find on iTunes or anywhere that you find podcasts. And oh my goodness, I heard this guy last Saturday, uh, Russell, and it was amazing. He was a keynote speaker at uh, the Methodist Conference in uh, Virginia, and it was a whole conference about race. And diversity and how to rethink how we relate to each other. Mm-hmm. And I was so impressed with him. I called him up says How about being on the podcast? And he said, Yes. So here we are. Ramal Toon, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange.
1: Thanks for having me on. It's good to be with you guys.
0: Did I say your name right? You did. It has a really neat ring to it, Ramal. Um, so I could, uh, we don't make a practice of reading long, boring introductions. We like for our guests to introduce themselves. So tell us about yourself, your background, what's brought you here, basically your story. Yeah. And what's your passion?
1: Yeah, uh, my passion is uh, I am a storyteller. I love to tell stories of healing and redemption. Uh, That comes out of my own life experiences growing up in Northern California, Bay Area. I lived in San Francisco and throughout the Bay Area growing up inner city kid, um, and, you know, life challenges and, uh, mom was a substance abuser and had some challenges with alcohol and addiction. Uh, but that wasn't her whole story prior to that. She worked in the world of banking and oddly enough out of her success, uh, led her into addiction. Um, and then we lost everything by the time I was in middle school. Uh, went to live with my grandparents. Um, at the age of 16, moved to New Jersey, lived with my dad until I graduated high school, uh, served in the Army, uh, Gulf War Desert Storm, uh, 88 to 92, and was septi- accepted to Howard University. Uh, went to Howard University from 92 to 96. Um, plan was to go to medical school and uh, after I graduated, from Howard. I was preparing to take the MCAT and working as a clinical research associate on phase three pharmaceutical studies and working in a church, um, kind of volunteering and, uh, teaching some Bible studies. Um, didn't grow up in the church. I kind of ended up in the church simply because I had a girlfriend who went to church and she said, Hey, if you want to be with me, you got to go to church. I said, Hey, praise the Lord, whatever it takes. And, uh, ended up in church, and. had a passion for it and realized one day sitting at my desk at a pharmaceutical company, uh, phase three study, working on a study and a Bible study lesson and realized I loved the, um, you know, teaching and I probably would have been a really good doctor, but I wanted to um, go into ministry. So I ended up going to Duke University for graduate school, getting a degree in religion. Never really worked in a church full time. I worked in a couple of churches, but about 12 years ago, I started my own consulting company, basically doing strategy and public relations in a variety of settings from corporate to uh, large nonprofits, um, political campaigns and things of that sort, doing a lot of strategy and uh, faith community uh, strategy and things of that sort. Wrote a book four years ago, um, and that book kind of told my story of my journeys and challenges in the inner city and how I overcame them. And then uh, most recently, I wrote another book uh, entitled Love is an Inside Job. The subtitle is Getting Vulnerable with God. There it is. She was holding it up. And uh, that book is really about a journey of a life of wholeness and fulfillment through the lens of therapy and faith. So it deals with vulnerability. I always tell people, if you know Brene Brown, I'm Brother Brown. Um, And I kind of talk about my journey and the journeys of others that have had to overcome life challenges to find a deeper sense of meaning, um, fulfillment, and in a very real way, peace of mind. um, That is rooted in healing your story, having a clearer sense of who you really are in the world and then letting everything flow from the inside out so that your success is actually an outward expression of internal wholeness, rather than expecting those things outside of you to make you feel whole, uh, which I learned the hard way just didn't work, but
0: everything flows from the inside out. That's quite amazing. And um, you studied with um, Will Williman at Duke, didn't you? I did have a class with uh, Will Williman. yes he's been a guest on this podcast and had, as you might imagine, some profound things to say. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And you, um, you had an amazing story about writing a letter to Richard Rohr, who's quite the influencer and, um, he gave you a time and spent the day with you. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So this was even before I knew I was going to have a book coming out. We did not have a book deal at the time. Um, I came across a friend on, on social media who posted a roar quote, You know, he sends out these daily meditations. Mm-hmm. And it was really powerful. And so I started following him, getting those meditations via email every night. And some friends were planning a retreat with Richard. And I said, and I didn't know him. And so they were asking me for some advice around strategy. And I said, here's the deal. I will help you with strategy free of charge. If you somehow connect me with Richard Rohr, I'm a big fan. I've been reading his books. I get his meditations. And they couldn't guarantee it. Um, He had been ill at the time, uh, battling prostate cancer. They introduced me to his executive director via email. I wrote a letter. He gave it to Richard. And literally, I would say two days before Christmas, uh, Richard Rohr emailed me himself and said, hey. I'm recovering from prostate cancer. I'm feeling better. I've been reading the letters. Yours was the first one I read. Um, we can do a call if that's what you like. Or if you have time, you can come and I'll spend a day with you here uh, in New Mexico. If you just come in a day early, I'll give you the whole day. And uh, so I did that. I booked the ticket, we identified a day, and literally I um, spent full day from like nine in the morning till about eight at night, just hanging out with uh, Richard Rohr, asking questions. And he asked me a lot of questions. Oddly enough, some of his questions were specifically around race. Um, And my questions were around meditation and understanding my story through the lens of healing and redemption. And we started building a friendship and we, we stay in touch quite regularly. So when love is an inside job was ready to come out I asked him to write an endorsement, so you'll see his endorsement in the book. Same as Bob Goff is in there and Parker Palmer. Yeah. Just, yeah, people I've been fortunate enough to meet along the way.
0: Richard Rohr says, this book fully engages you from the very first page with deep humanity, dear honesty, and yes, vulnerability. Now, having that kind of quote from Richard Rohr is a big deal. If if uh, people listening to this podcast don't know the name Richard Rohr, R O H R, he is a person who will help you shift your paradigm and rethink your basic tenets of faith and your your journey. Your faith journey will be empowered in a very different way. So. Ramal, here, I'll help you with your strategy, if you'll introduce me to Richard Rohr.
1: <laughs> ah, deal, deal. This,
0: um, my wife couldn't put this book down, so uh, it's, it's on my queue. I have, I have two ahead of it, but um, she... Ah,
1: is, I don't know who those other two books are. I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there are other friends. I, I do have a lot of author friends, um, but... I've already read it because she reads out of it to me. So you got to hear this. <laughs> and so she's not reading anything else. She's finishing your book and it's, it's profound. Now, we talked about Richard Rohr shifting the paradigm. When I heard you speak, you were on what, two and a half hours in front of a. Two
1: hours you guys had to endure me talking.
0: It went by fast. It went by fast. That's called a nap, Hugh. <laughs> I took notes you cant I took notes. Um, you helped us look at things in a different light, and so go go backwards a little bit. Um, you pivoted when your girlfriend said, If you want to see me, you got to go to church yeah. but what 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 really got you you started studying for the bible study- Bible yeah. study you were digging in the scripture, you didn't grow up with this tradition. So in a way, you've got an opportunity to see this in a very fresh light. Mm -hmm. So what was the biggest pivot for you to go from where you were to where you are?
1: You know, well, there have been multiple uh, shifts and pivots along the way. I think the first was um, with church, it gave me the, the first opportunity to shift my narrative and find a new way of being in the world. Uh, Much of my story and my identity, in terms of who I believed I could become in the world, my capabilities, were shaped by my experiences growing up in a very challenging environment, uh, which created some self-doubt, some insecurities, some uncertainty about the direction of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, Becoming a follower of Jesus and being in the context of Christian community uh, gave me some other some people to be around to look at how different their lives were from mine and how their faith uh, played a role in their lives. So I was able to um, then look at how might my faith um, propel me in different directions and shape a new narrative for me. Uh, that was the first pivot because I think for many people, when they come into the church like I did, you not only begin to have a deeper relationship with God and your faith, you also, at the same time, are learning how to do church. And so it's like even in the workplace, you, you are, you know, you go in you're, you're selected for a specific task, but you're also learning the culture of that environment and what it looks like to succeed there Mm -hmm. In the church world. You're learning what it's also like to succeed in church, to be okay there. Uh, where to sit, where not to sit, which things you can do, which things you can't do. Um, you know, how to even schedule to have a an, a meeting, a room for a meeting and the politics of space. Um, things wow. will play out in, in other places. And um, I learned how to do church in the midst of growing my faith and then realized that in that process, I was also... Um, needing to suppress a part of my identity in terms of my upbringing and the challenges that we faced that were not welcomed in the church. Um, as Well, at least the kind of church that I was in, it was more based on who you are now rather than the story that brought you here. Um, and again, those things play out in the workplace too. We, we are oftentimes conditioned to leave certain parts of us at home, Um, So that we can function at a high level, at least what we think is a high level in that context, not realizing that the only way to truly function at a high level is to bring all of you into context um, in the workplace or in the church, because nothing is wasted. uh, But there's wisdom in your story. So the next pivot was actually withdrawing from church. Um, And there's a chapter in the book where it says I had to, uh, in order to save my faith, I had to lose my religion. And to draw closer to God required retracting from the things that I was, um, the structured boundaries of who God could and could not be for me. Um, Which were some of the social norms of church rather than the actual um, biblical narrative of how God uses all of your story and can redeem it and that there's power in your broken places that can help heal others. So in spending that time alone with friends who were of the faith, who were still in church, um, I was able to redefine myself based on a deeper relationship with God that um, had more room than the walls of the church and then the next iteration is what I call the altar call, the return back to community within the context of a congregation, but now bringing all of me into that context.
0: Wow. And we're speaking to uh, leaders out there. They're, they're running what um, we've reframed, the, the popular name for it is nonprofit. This is the nonprofit exchange. But we, um, we're the only industry in the world that defines ourselves by what we're not we 're really a social profit we 're a social benefit we 're a tax exempt charity we 're a business that that has special rules and provides impact for people 's lives. There's lots of things that we are, and i I experience a whole lot of leaders that define themselves by the damage of their past they're they 're limited because of their their family of heritage you met You met my wife, leanne Taylor, actually. I think just before you left, she, she got a whole stack of your books. <laughs> she did. <laughs> yeah. And, Thank her again. Oh yeah. They'll, they'll be put to good use, I'm I'm sure. Um, <clears throat> but we've been in a study of the work of Murray Bowen, B-O-W-E-N, Bowen Family Systems, and it's it's learning about our family of origin, but it it's not to to blame, it's to understand ourselves. And when I listen you talk about your story. It's been a remarkable pivot for you, not being bound by, by the past. James Allen wrote this little book years, a century ago, I guess, um, called As a Man Thinketh. And in there, reframing the language, he said, um, people want to change their circumstances but are unwilling to change themselves. They therefore remain bound. And I'm I'm tracking this this vulnerability. Of course, Brene Brown has been out there invisible and in my world of conducting, James Jordan has a book out called The Musician's Soul. Mm-hmm. He says you cannot make effective music on a podium until you can be vulnerable as a leader in front of that ensemble. And, and so what, what thoughts do you have for leaders breaking through some of those limits, those, those, those impressions of the past to become vulnerable, and, and how will that benefit their leadership?
1: Yeah, well, first with your, your statement around nonprofits, as I, a friend of mine likes to say, it's actually, instead of nonprofits, how about we use language like for purpose?
2: Oh, yeah.
1: Um, it's yeah. far more empowering. We're for purpose organizations. Um, When it comes to leaders in the nonprofit sector, be it presidents and executive leadership teams, or even in corporate in the same way, um, there is, everyone has a story. Obviously my journey is not like yours and others, but we all have stories that have shaped our lives. Um, People tend to stay away from the wounded places um, because they still hurt, not realizing that by revisiting those stories that are sometimes uncomfortable there is a way to look at them to see how they have influenced you how they shaped you and continue to show up in your thinking your behavior your beliefs, uh, your interactions so that you can take back from that past experience what it took from you the confidence this the, the certainty the self-awareness um, and and take that back because those experiences are part of your life but they don't get to define the rest of your life so when you go when you do the work as a leader you're what you're in essence doing is turning a wound into a scar because the scar is the evidence of healing right Mm -hmm. people don't like dealing with their wounded places and we don't like them to do it either because when you're wounded you just bleed all over people that's not helpful Uh, but the scar is the evidence of healing and then that scar when you do the work gives you a deeper sense of of empathy as a leader with the people you are engaging. So it's not, in, in a sense, not just the work of getting people to perform a task, but it's being able to empathize with their journey, their experiences, their feelings in a way that allows you to connect such that they want to be a part of your team and they want to be guided and led by you because you understand them as a person and do not see them simply as someone who performs a task or to move a product. Um, so vulnerability uh, for the leader is, is not a sign of weakness. Vulnerability requires courage, uh, requires transparency and authenticity. And as a leader, when you think about the great leaders of any of our times, of our generations, um, they have been vulnerable in a way that they've been able to articulate a story about themselves and others in such a way that people can see themselves as a part of a deeper narrative, a bigger vision. Um, You cannot cultivate deep vision without vulnerability. Why? Because vulnerability says that I cannot do it myself. I'm not, I'm not capable. I'm finite and that I need to surrender, um, my understandings of who I am to something bigger than me that requires vulnerability to, to admit that this requires more than me, that I need you to get this done, that there's a place we can go together, but I need you to help create that vision. Um, that requires some vulnerability and some empathy.
0: Oh my goodness. Russell, um, I, you see why I love this guy. He's just, he's just got such great stuff to share. What are you thinking of over there in Denver?
2: Well, what I'm thinking of is is he explains a lot of things in there. And so a lot of the problems that we have today hinge on this notion of separation. We think we're separate from each other. We're separate from God. And we're out here on this island by ourselves. And this notion that whatever we manifest in our lives, we have to come up with the power to do that is ego-based and it keeps us falling short because what, what, what we do when we're in our natural state and our natural flow is we let things be manifested through us by being connected with that power out there, with that source. I'm not the source, but when I rely on the source and let the source flow through me, all sorts of remarkable things can happen. And everything starts on the inside. You know, our outside results are culmination of what's going on on the inside. And when when you come to a place where you figure that out, and it's tough because you know most people, most of us are, uh, you know, we have this thing called ego, and, and um, you know, there's this investment in looking good, no matter how bad things may be going. Uh, it could all be going to crap, but as long as I look good. And it's a mistaken assumption to operate in, in that way. So we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to come up with everything. What a leader does is inspires vision in people yes. and brings people along, knows exactly what she or he does not have, and then goes out and gets that, to build that vision and to make things come to fruition. And you know, a lot of times, there's this inner resistance. And that's human. That's natural. Uh When my inner resistance is up on anything that's that 's a signal to me that I might want to change how I look at it yeah. so this yeah, the
0: vulnerability I, thing is the key to that isn't it, it Romal?
1: it is indeed because when you talk about vision, I think a a solid leader, a healthy leader um first has a healthy vision for his or her life, right. Um, you can't take people where you haven't been or at least are on the journey to yourself. Um, you know, to the whole notion of people wanting to have the appearance of life as well and things are going well. I was doing that. You know, I was making a significant amount of money and I had all, I could check all the boxes from education, honor graduates, student body presidents, magna cum all that stuff, to homes, fancy cars, able to travel. I had the appearance of a good life but there was this internal angst that I still lacked peace of mind Um, and that was simply because I was under the assumption that if I attained enough and purchased enough and had enough, I would eventually feel like I am enough. The problem is that that's a leaky bucket approach um, because the wound was internal and that in order to feel like enough, I had to believe that for myself, that nothing outside of me could produce that in me. Uh, As the book says, it it was an inside job. And I had to deal with those places in me that felt incomplete and deal with why did I feel like I wasn't enough yet? Uh, What was going on with me? Uh, Because when I looked around me, I should have been feeling pretty awesome about myself and about life because on the surface, things looked great. And I had to realize that the pursuit of success did not deliver on the promise. Um, I thought the promise was I will, be, I will have joy and happiness. Happiness was temporary. You buy a new car, you're happy until the car needs to go to the shop. Um, you buy a new house, you're happy until some plumbing breaks. I wanted joy. I wanted a state of being. That no matter what my environment and what my circumstances, I could say I love my life. And I was at a place where I could not make that statement honestly. And I yearned for the ability to love my life no matter what. Um, and I, I wanted to put away the facade. And so it required doing the inner work. And I found that in doing it, I feel lighter. Uh, I can appreciate life. I can look around me and be fully present, uh, not only to the life I'm living, but to the people who are in it. I can sit in meetings and not just wait for my turn to speak, but be fully present and listen and ask questions and actually have an interest rather than just an agenda, um, because I'm free. And, uh, to Russell's point, um, I have everything I need, even if it's not in front of me. It's all based on how I see life and who I see, who I believe I am and the context of the world and what's accepted, what's available to me. Um, again, to get to that place requires vulnerability. And that vulnerability leads you into humility. Um, and that if you're courageous enough to be honest with yourself, about who you truly desire to be in the world and ask yourself, what's keeping me from becoming my best self in my lifetime? And you come to the conclusion that I'm what's keeping me from that. My, my beliefs about myself, the parts of my story I haven't dealt with. And if I truly want to be the best version of me in my lifetime, let me be man or woman enough to confront those narratives and, and redeem what they took from me so that I can live life Uh, To its fullest,
0: you um, you're in. There's there's a a trend now. Big big celebrities, Jay Z, The Rock, Kevin Love, others. We talked about Brene Brown. Um, There's there's a trend for people openly talking about vulnerability. Um, You made the pivot. Did you have uh, a counselor, or coach, a therapist, uh, somebody that was helping you reframe things to, to break through to this feeling comfortable. You were on stage, and I was on the second row watching you. You were just open and vulnerable. You were very transparent. That way the audience could really connect with you almost immediately. So how did you did, – was there someone working with you? It's It's hard to do it by ourselves, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think we're capable of doing it by ourselves. I have a therapist. In fact, this past weekend, we were in South Carolina together conducting a workshop. Uh, we I created a workshop that's based on Love as an Inside Job called Clear Conscience, Using the Past to Heal the Present. And together with my therapist, we conducted a four-hour workshop uh, on Saturday. Uh, so, you know, having a therapist, someone I can talk to, uh, as a friend of mine says, she's a, a doctor. Her therapist calls herself her her compassionate witness. So having that compassionate witness in my life that I can be fully honest with after having, you know, we've grown to trust each other enough where I can tell him the whole truth uh, without shame and judgment, but for the sake of guidance. Um, so, you know, therapy helps every great leader I've ever talked to has a therapist, Um, I tell people who, especially in the faith community, who kind of shun therapy, it's like saying, you know, if you broke your leg, you wouldn't simply say, well, God knows my leg is broken. Hey, God, you see my leg, heal my leg. I don't need to go to the doctor. You're God enough to heal it right here. That doesn't make good sense. And you probably wouldn't do that because you know that something is required of you for that kind of healing. Uh, The same with our our wounded places emotionally, um, and and we need help at times to help heal those things that we can't heal ourselves, Um, and and it requires the same level of intention to identify a professional who can uh, walk alongside you on a journey to becoming your best self.
0: The title that you suggested for this interview was um, healing, it was men healing, and how that impacts our leadership. Say a little bit more about what what drove you to think of that title. Yeah, um,
1: when we were uh, working on the book with my publisher, uh, the Hachette Book Group, the book is under their imprint, uh, Faith Words, uh, my editor made the comment that uh, this is a book uh, about healing men and also as a book for the women who love them. Uh, simply because the book is written through the lens of, you know, my journey as a man and healing my story and learning vulnerability and empathy and what love really is and expressing that and having, you know, healthy ways of affection and love um, through the lens of, you know, a man who's doing the work, but there are stories about women in the book, um, relationships and things of that sort. So I believe that in some ways, when men men are able to heal our stories, our beliefs about ourselves and about other people, um, we can now get rid of these false paradigms of what it means to be a man. Um, you know, I was just saying to a group of men over the weekend. We, as men, we're rarely taught by the men who nurture us how to actually be happy. We are conditioned to be strong, stand on your own two feet, don't cry, you know, be a man, Uh, you know, be strong, carry the weight, endure the burdens, because a man is able to endure, you know, burdens and carry the weight. That's what men do. No one ever said, hey, Hugh, you know, when you were 10, I want, here's what it looks like to be a happy grown man. Here's what it's like to be a man who's full of joy and peace of mind. We didn't get that. We were told, don't cry, stand on your own two feet. And then what happens is you grow up, you get in a relationship with a woman, and she throws this question at you and says, so tell me how you feel. And you don't know what to do with that. You're like, "Um, I can eat. You got nothing, right? Because you're not conditioned to talk about how you feel. As, As young men, that's not how we're nurtured. So we can do away with that false paradigm that men don't have feelings of sadness, anxiety, fear, and doubt. And at least if we do, we can't express them. We can get rid of that and say, no, it's okay to express those things. And it doesn't make you less of a man, nor does it make you weak. It makes you smart enough to be a healthy man. And that allows you to be in healthy relationships and engage people in a healthy way without showing up with a facade that pretty much everyone knows isn't the real truth, anyway.
0: No, it's it's just the facade is a really good, and we have people say, "Oh, man up, suck it up, deal it with it." You know, we're we're just this this cement face, and um, you know, it's it's a major journey just to be a real whole person. For those of us that that grew up with that paradigm, um, I I um Russell, if you, if you got a question for our guest, um, lay it on him. This is a good time to give him a hard question.
2: Well, you know, there's this thing called the male ego that gets us into trouble. And you have described some of the problems that we have. And, uh, I'm wondering that if that narrative is really starting to change or more people or more men actually starting to get it, that this whole Superman thing is killing him. And, uh, is the dynamic starting to shift with more and more men looking at it and saying, okay, I need to do something different because I I can't hold the world up on my shoulders here. Do you see a movement in that direction? Do you see more change? Yes. The funny thing is no one ever asked us to
1: hold the world on our shoulders. We've assumed that that's what men do rather than we can hold everything together. Um, as, as people living in community to bring about change or to live healthy lives. I think that there is a, a movement of sorts where people are really beginning to realize that these ideas that I had about identity and even ego have not served me well. And they have not delivered on the promise. Aesthetically, when I look around, you know, I have some things But the thing that I truly desire, this this happiness, this joy, this sense of wholeness and fulfillment, who I was told to be in the world has not delivered that. And I'm tired. I think more men and women are realizing I'm tired, that this, this game I've been playing, this mask I've been wearing, this armor I've been carrying is heavy. And I want to lay it down so that I can be free and whole and I realized that I'm only going to get to do this life thing once. And I want to leave on empty. I want to leave having to having become the best version of me. I could possibly be in my lifetime. I want to live a life of meaning and fulfillment. And that fulfillment means that I want to be filled with the essence of who I truly am in the world and let that flow from the inside out. Um, you know, that's why love is an inside job. when. I learn to love and value me, then all I can see through the lens of that self love is the love and value of others
0: there are um, like my wife bought a stack of your books and I'm sure others did and there's discussion groups, especially with pastors um, and that's a unique position to be in there's a lot of stress and a lot of assumptions, especially for male pastors and Women are help helping change that paradigm. Another quote I like from James Allen's little book is, uh, "We don't attract what we need; we attract what we are." And so, breaking through to this 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 vulnerability, breaking through to this pattern of accepting our healing—you know, it's not a wound; it's a scar; it's a strength. Um, breaking through that. What are you hoping? I want, I want to hear two things. What are you hoping will happen? Um, when people rally around and study your book, what will happen to, especially men as leaders, but but women who care about men and, and especially in the church. And then after you say that, what was your aha, your journey, your your value? We write books for other people, but amazing things happen to us when we're writing the book. So take either one of those in, in order yeah. here. Well, I,
1: you know, there are several layers of what I hope will happen. Um, as people read the book, uh, my desire is that they find themselves in the book and begin to look at their own stories uh, and engage in the process of doing the work to become whole themselves, to be their, their, their best selves uh, through the lens of faith and therapy. I wanted to show that these things are not contradictions, that therapy is a way of honoring your faith. I wanted to, you know, my hope is that people will uh, be courageous enough to bar- embark on their own journey of healing. Uh, to begin a deeper dialogue around um, uh, our sense of self-worth and identity around our stories and how our stories have shaped us and the ways that we can begin to take control of our stories and play the lead in our lives uh, and then create a new way forward. Uh, And then I also want to, you know, next year my hope is to, uh, my plan actually is to have a men's conference around emotional health and wellness. Uh, with a thousand men from across the country, and host that here in Atlanta, uh, where we'll be guided by, there'll be breakout sessions and led by therapists um, to deal with a whole host of issues. Um, my aha moments uh, is actually, I believe, in chapter seven, uh, the chapter where it says, uh, "Getting vulnerable with God and honest with my dad." Uh, in January, my dad and I had not talked for ten years uh, since my mom passed, and. My mom was free and clean of drugs from several years before she died of lung cancer. My dad came to her funeral. Um, and after that, we, we didn't talk. We didn't have a great relationship, he and I. But in the course of writing the book, and now being a father myself, and my editor asked me to talk about the healing process, my own journey of healing and wholeness, and the relationship with my father. And as I was writing, Uh, she she sent me a note. She said, I can't use any of this. And I said, well, why not? She said, because it reads like you're still angry. And she said, I need you to think about the relationship you have with your own kids, the level of grace you're going to need from them, and then offer that to your dad. And so I realized that I was writing from the lens of a wounded child who was 16 not a 48 year old man who has been on a journey of healing so the wounded 16 year old with its disappointments and frustrations and negative memories was guiding my hand and i had to step back and reflect and say that's not who i am now i'm i'm not who i am now is not based on who i was then what would i say to my dad now based on being fully present in this moment at 48 the lessons i've learned the wisdom the grace that I will need for my own children and the grace that I offer others. And so i pinned penned that chapter differently. And in real time, uh, back in January of this year, uh, my dad and I connected. I was speaking in Houston, and he lived 30 minutes from uh, where I was speaking and we connected and had a great experience, but I showed up not as a wounded 16-year-old but as a, a, a man who's on a journey of healing, who wants to be fully present and offer grace and love to people. And that changed the dynamics of our interaction. So that was my aha moment. And there's more on that uh, in that chapter of Love is an SI Job.
0: Which chapter is that?
1: It's chapter seven, uh, getting vulnerable with God and honest with my dad. And then I write him a letter in the book.
0: Oh. Huh. That's powerful. I can't wait to get there. You, um, you act on, on your, your transformational thoughts. You actually transform yourself for these. So many people have thoughts and aha moments and never do much about it. And at, at 48, you have wisdom that far surpasses your years. Um, so it's, you're a no-nonsense person. What prompts you to want to act on these? Now, what you've, the thread that you've had through this interview is that you've listened to external uh, advocates, external supporters, ex- external pundits that talk to you and give you feedback. So many leaders poo-poo that and don't pay attention and then don't act on it. So you've, you've demonstrated how this, this transparency vulnerability has helped you. What's underneath that says to you, I'm going to do something about this?
1: Honestly, um, my own mortality. Um, My mom uh, passed 11 years ago. She was 53, and she died of lung cancer. And ever since her death, I've had a very keen awareness of my own mortality. And that guides me because I'm constantly aware of, I don't know how long I get to be here. And to put things off is tempting fate and, and, and tempting time. And so I really want to be the best version of me in my lifetime, and I don't know how long that is. And so I don't want to waste time pretending and, or putting things off. I really want, when I think about the, the internal peace that I desire, the level of joy and happiness I desire, I don't want to be the reason that I put that off for myself. Um, and when I think about, you know, being the best version of me in my lifetime and not knowing how long that's going to be, um, I can't assume that I have time to waste. And if I have time to waste, I then have to question why am I wasting it and why, what am I wasting it on? What's the, there's no value in that to uh, living my best life while I have it. Um, so yeah, I try to, my best to remove the gray areas. I don't always get it right, but I offer myself grace along the way. Um, I celebrate even the smallest of victories in my life that are pushing me in the direction of wholeness. Um, and so I'm, I'm really compelled by that. Um, my, my sense, my awareness of, uh, my humanity and my mortality, and saying, "Look, I get to do this once, and I want this journey to be amazing."
0: Wow, wow, that's that is so key. You have uh, we have two websites listed on the nonprofit exchange. It's uh, uh, Romaltune r o m a l t u n e dot com. On there, in the the store link, there's a place to see your books and connect and, and actually get a book there's about you. And there's some videos there with you speaking. Um, there's also a place that they can find out about you, you speaking, um, any other, and then I want to, want to go to the website for your nonprofit, but, uh, the not give us the URL about for the nonprofit and tell us, what was your passion to start that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, um, one, Love is an Inside Job is available on all book-selling platforms. Um, the, my nonprofit, clear, the Clear Story Education Fund, uh, started out of my own giving just over 10 years ago. The name has changed. It's now Clear Story Education. The website is clearstoryworks.org. That's C-L-E-R-E-W-O-R-K-S.org. Um, the clear story is actually an agricultural term. Um, I see a couple of chat things popping up there, uh, but it's the clear story is an architectural term. Excuse me, not agricultural. Architectural term. It's the highest level of a wall containing windows that let in light. And so, if you ever were to Google clear story and look at a picture, you'll typically see pictures of churches and the ceilings where there are these windows above eye level and light shining in. So we use it as a metaphor to that, and saying that. Through the Clear Story workshops, we take a high-level look at your life and shine light on the stories that have shaped who you believe you are in the world. And so uh, through Clear Story, uh, we conduct workshops on uh, creating a healthy vision for your life. Uh, We have one called Clear Economics, where we help you to understand and value money through the lens of your story and your economic narrative and how it shaped you and how to write a new narrative forward. We have one called Clear Conscience, where we deal with emotional health and wellness. Um, And through the money that's generated uh, from the workshops and my speaking engagements, we have a fund uh, where we provide stipends and some tuition assistance from kids from challenging circumstances who otherwise would never get a college education without the help of others, which has been a part of my story. My ability to live the life that I have now is because of the generosity of strangers when I was unable to do for myself.
0: Oh, it's profound. And so, um, and the, the chat was somebody wanted those, those links. Um, you can go to the nonprofit org, the nonprofit And, um, there's a video there, this video for this, this uh, interview will be there, but the links for those two websites are there. So before we, we go to the, the commercial, um, Russell, um, what are you thinking? Got some more questions for our, our guest?
2: Well, what we've been talking about, we talked a lot here and covered a lot of things and uh, a lot of things take place in the mind and the mind is our friend and it can be compatible with spirit, you know. So we talked a lot about doing things on an emotional and a mental level, but There's a spiritual component that goes into this. Uh, It's a connection with a power greater than ourselves that can't be defined by anybody else. It's a personal connection. How much does that play into your work and uh, actual mindfulness practice with prayer and meditation? How much do those factor into the work you do?
1: Oh, Russell, great questions. Um, Prayer and meditation is essential to me. I actually... The more I've learned about meditation and, you know, talking with Richard Rohr and uh, reading and listening to different podcasts, uh, the more I meditate. um, I see. So prayer and meditation are different for me. The paradigm I I learned, you know, when I got into the church for prayer was that I did all the talking and I did all the asking. Specifically, prayer was about, hey, God, I need some stuff. Um, you know, whatever stuff was from healing to a car to you name it. It was like, God, can you help a brother out? Um, (laughs) meditation was more God doing the talking and me doing the listening. Meditation was harder initially because I was used to doing all the talking and didn't even know how to listen for God and the ability to meditate, be still, um, And, you know, deal with the thoughts that are coming and not try to push them away, but receive them and then let them go. Um, That stillness practice has shown up in so many other ways in my life. Um, I deal with life differently. I'm more patient with with life and the world and situations. I remember one time sitting in traffic and realizing I wasn't annoyed um, and totally not acting like I didn't know Christ. Uh, And that traffic uh, because I was able to be still and I was okay. And I thought to myself, I have the ability to be still for 20 minutes every day. I can be still and fully present. If I break up this moment in this traffic in a 20 minute increments, this is nothing, right? I do this. I can be present. I can reflect now, but meditation and prayer play a central role. Uh, in and, and this journey, and I talk about that in the book, and that um, through meditation, I'm able to listen for God. I'm able to also, um, in prayer meditation, what I want to say is I have come to a place where I'm able to bring everything to God. Um, and that means my broken places. You know, the Bible says God will give you beauty for ashes. I'm willing to bring God my ashes. Um, I think sometimes people will say, well, God already knows all that, you know, painful stuff. Why do you have to say it? Because this is a conversation. It's a relationship. God knows. God wants to know that you're aware of yourself and you're aware of your own places that need healing. And giving voice to it is powerful. Um, You know, as Brene Brown always says, the shame thrives in silence. But when you name it and give voice to it, it loses its power. And so in the presence of God during prayer, naming it, I'm free from the power of shame and guilt and doubt uh, because I'm able to surrender it. Um, I've often thought that life was about fighting to achieve. And what I've realized is that everything I thought I've had to fight for, it was never about fighting. It was about surrender. Um, and you know, the Bible says, you know, the battle's not yours, it's the Lord's. I get that now. So much of the fulfillment I've wanted for myself actually requires surrender. Um, the peace I wanted requires surrender. The love that I wanted requires surrender. Um, the life that I wanted. Um, and and so you know, prayer meditation plays an integral part in it. My favorite scripture, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Well, that that is in fact true. God has a plan to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. You don't have to fight for that. You have to surrender to it. So it's already there for you to receive. Just say yes and allow yourself to experience it rather than think you have to go to battle for
0: everything. The battle's already won. Is relationship with God a requirement for inner healing? I think that whether
1: you have a relationship with God or not, God has a relationship with you. Um, and so it, You not, a person not being aware of God does not mean that God is not aware of that person. And God's plan is not based on whether you are aware of God. God says, I know the plan I have for you. So you didn't create yourself, so you don't get to tell yourself what you were created for. So in many ways, whether you know it or not, even when you don't know it, the hand of God is still moving. God's, um, you know, righteousness and God's purpose falls on the just and the unjust, right? God's grace, right? So you don't have to be aware of it to receive grace and you don't have to be aware of it to receive God's love. I think you appreciate it more. You're able to express gratitude more when you are aware that it's not you that it's a God who's bigger than you, who is directing his path, who is, um, I'd use a metaphor, the Duke Ellington of your life, right? I love jazz. And, and and the Duke was able to take all of these different instruments and he never asked the trumpet to be the sax or the sax to be the bass. He just said, follow my lead, Do be the best version of you that you can be Follow my cues and we'll make something beautiful together, right? I think if we follow God's lead and just try to be ourselves and not try to be someone else, God makes some pretty beautiful things happen. When we're aware, we can celebrate that. We have a greater sense of gratitude. I think gratitude is a path to a greater life. Um, So yes, that healing can come, whether you're aware that it's God or not. Think there is a greater sense of joy and peace and gratitude and adoration uh, when you realize that um, that there there's a God there is that loves you enough that um, God doesn't remove God's presence from everything that um, you were already created for. Whoa,
0: whoa, that's really good. I'm going to talk about our sponsor for a minute. When I come back. Um, Russell, I'm going to give you the last word. What do you want to leave people with? A thought, a tip, a challenge. (laughs) So think about your closing thought for, we'll give you like three minutes to do that. Um, Our sponsor today is the uh, United Methodist Church Board of Higher Education and Ministry, specifically the UMC Cyber Campus. We've heard Ramal talk about personal growth. Any leader, especially the leaders in the Christian church, need to constantly work on their skills. So if you go to UMC, which stands for United Methodist Church, umccybercampus.com, you'll find a whole array of, of really good continuing education products that you can use, study at home. As a matter of fact, Center Vision has a leadership program in there, which is fill in the gaps uh, to, to be able to be the best leader you can be, created from real-life situations. So we went backwards from the problem and created the solution before the problem exists. So umccybercampus.com, we're able to deliver these programs to you no charge because we have great sponsors like that who have great programs that bring you great value. So I'd like to see you check them out. So as we're ending up this really awesome interview, Ramal, what do you want to leave people with? You know, um,
1: you asked the question, like, what's, you know, you're no, you said you're a no-nonsense person. What, what's behind all of this? I think what I would want to leave people with is um, from this moment forward, uh, you have an opportunity to be the best version of you that you can possibly be in your lifetime. Um, every moment in your life is an opportunity to say yes to grace and yes to who you are truly meant to be. Yes. To the peace of mind, the joy, the fulfillment that is your deepest journey, that sense of connection, that sense of value, um, begins with you saying yes to it. Um, and, and I would leave people with that, uh, reality that, um, Everything you desire, who you desire to be, who you're meant to be, the answer is already yes. Um, and you just have to pursue it and be unapologetically and authentically you.
0: Ramal Toon, you're awesome. Thank you for spending this hour with us on the Nonprofit Exchange sharing your wisdom with the world. Thank you so much. It's
1: been my pleasure, Hugh. And Russell, thank you so much. It's been great to meet you, and I've enjoyed being here.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.